Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed wherever you live with the Newcastle Libraries app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land on which we live, the Awabakal and Waramai people, who were the first storytellers of this nation and are the proud survivors of more than 200 years of continuing dispossession. This is the Broken Chain series presented by Newcastle Libraries Real and local artist Damien Lenane. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed throughout the series are solely attributed to the host and guests of the program and do not reflect the official policy or position of the City of Newcastle. Welcome to Broken Chains, a podcast on the prison system. Broken Chains is recorded on the traditional land of the Awabakal people, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders, especially considering how disproportionately our prison system affects Indigenous people to this day. I'm your host, Damien Lenane, and on today's episode, we're interviewing an Indigenous elder, Donna Meehan, about issues including Indigenous deaths in custody. Yes, it was broken. Donna, thanks so much for being on our show today. It um, might actually interest you, you to know you're the first person we've interviewed who um, hasn't been to prison. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Damien, for your time. No, no, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah, I like to think we're a bit of an equal opportunity podcast here, so we're happy to... You don't have to have a prison history, but uh, yeah, it does help. It's also nice, great to have another Newcastle resident on the show. I guess uh, we'll probably... Start with uh, you coming to Newcastle because I mean your story on its own could probably cover several episodes. I note you've released a memoir <laughs> titled um, "It Is No Secret," which we'll put links to in the in the show notes for people to check that mm. out. But um, if people want to hear more about you, why don't we start by mm. telling us a bit about how you came to live in Newcastle for people who aren't already familiar with your story? Briefly, <laughs> was born in Canamble, lived in an Aboriginal camp with my parents, aunts, uncles, siblings, and cousins. Then mum got a letter from the government to um, have all the children at the train station and uh, we were all taken away. So mum lost seven children overnight and we were on the train together but when we got to Sydney we were all separated. So my brothers went to Kinchilla Boys Home at Kempsey. The other siblings went to various foster homes in Sydney. The twins who were six weeks old were sent to Melbourne and I came through to Newcastle. So I arrived on the 22nd of April, 1960, and uh, was fostered and grew up, was educated, married, and I've worked with the Awabakal people for 32 years. It's interesting. I, uh, something, a completely different circumstances and um, definitely um, not completely comparable, but... Um, I was actually taken from my mother when I was five. Um, yeah, different circumstances. My um, my father fabricated allegations that she'd abused me, which she hadn't. And because of how mm. I'm sure you you know how bad the like family services programs and su- mm. support are, um, and the, the court system as well. Um, the case was delayed for many years, and she didn't actually get me back for eight years. That's how long the case dragged out for, which was mm. really horrendous. But um, I I can tell you that uh. I carried a lot of um, anger because of yeah. that and indirectly 
that probably uh, had a lot to do with um, why I ended up in the criminal justice system myself. Can you tell me, yeah, I, I know, yeah. it noted in your memoir that um, you said you understandably carried a lot of anger as well. Can you tell us about mm. how that affected your life? Yes, and um, thank you for sharing yours too, Damien. Mm. And it has an impact on us. And as children, you believe as a five-year-old child does, you know. And so for me, I just grew up thinking, oh, they didn't want me. They sent me away because you don't know the policies. You don't know what the government's doing, what the system's doing. And so I just grew up. And by the time I was 12, 13, I was so angry because I, I didn't fit anywhere. I looked different. I was the only average kid at all the five, six, seven schools I went to, and uh, that has an impact on how you perceive yourself and the plate, your place in the world. So my anger was silent. I was fostered for three years and adopted by European parents who were wonderful. You know, I was really blessed with beautiful parents, but you've still got to navigate all the racism at school even walking to and from school, the names that you called. And society wasn't pleasant to Aboriginal people in the 60s, in the very early 60s even. You know, so you were reminded every day you were different. You were reminded every day you were less than. And that probably took me 33 years to believe that, you know, I was a good person and that I had a place to stand in society. But... So my anger was silent because being raised in the church and European families, you know, you weren't allowed to be angry, show anger. And so I would just go and pray about it and surrender it. But it was this constant anger within. And in the end, even when I was 28, 30, I was thinking, you know, why am I so angry? But you're angry at injustice. You're angry at oppression. You're angry at the things you can't see, but you certainly do know how it makes you feel. And so I had to come to point to surrender that anger. And look, that day was very powerful and I had to make a decision. So, you know, people would just say, I'll just make a choice and get on with it. Well, you know, you haven't walked down my tracks. You haven't been on my journey. And so each person eventually gets through that fog of anger and then being able to make a decision and to step out of the fog and then slowly taking each step each day. And it's been very interesting where those steps have led me. Yeah, I can uh, appreciate that. I can draw some comparisons there because I, I um, mm. I didn't feel like I was um listened to uh, when I was yeah. younger. Like oh, I told some people about things that had happened to me, and, and long story short, I wasn't believed. And yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. I I bottled everything up, and then yeah. in my um in my late twenties, that actually came out quite um yeah explosively, which led to me being sent to prison admire how you've reached a point where you, you you can share your story with forgiveness because I can imagine a lot of people who went through something similar to you might not have been able to do that. Yeah. yeah and I suppose it's lucky at least that you had very good foster parents. I can imagine not all of the foster parents uh, for Indigenous people were that supportive. 
Like, how much do you think that the ongoing trauma from colonization and the stolen generation impacts on high Indigenous incarceration rates um, today even? Yes. Well, I remember back in 93, I was working at the Wabakal Co-op and our people, the um, and movers and shakers, that our leadership that were way up the top there, Pat Dodson and Rick Dodson and various others, they were pushing and calling for an inquiry into black death and custody, and, and I remember signing that. And probably thinking, oh, this won't go anywhere. The government's not going to listen to us. And that report came out. And out of 110 of the first uh, statistics of black death and custody, 101 were children of the stolen generation. And I thought, wow, this is so powerful. Because, like I said before, you don't know who you are. You need to know your roots to know where you're going. It's all of that, those issues of identity, of belonging. And, you know, that's it. You need to belong. Once you feel you're part of something, part of a family or, you know, part of society. And it wasn't probably until I was at 35 that I even saw myself as an Australian, like part of Australia's society, and then stepping into the international arena to see yourself that you've got a place internationally within the nations. That's powerful stuff, but it takes many, many steps to get there. And I look, you know, even today, every time I speak in churches or wherever, I'm saying that every Aboriginal family is affected by either stolen generation or black death in custody. If it wasn't you and your siblings that were taken, then it was your next door neighbours on the mission or it was your cousins. We've all known someone who's had a family member die black death in custody, and I tell you, the anger that that brings up, I've had two cousins die within in police cells in custody. And it, it, it just shatters a family. It, you absolutely lose confidence in the judicial system, in the police system, and bearing in mind that it was the police it was their role to go out in the cars, usually a utility or these black hold-on cars, to forcefully put children into the cars and drive off with them. So, you know, even going back in the 60s, our parents, our aunts and uncles had such a distrust for the lawmakers and the law keepers. And so, you know, when I started seeing Aboriginal people putting up their hand to go work in the police force, that was a huge step. That, you know, and a lot of our people thought they've sold us out, they're going to work for the governors. And I remember our first beautiful lady that went to work for docks in Newcastle and because we're selling generation, we think, how can she do that? How can she? But, yeah, there was a couple of years and I went and worked for family and community services for nine years. And I was in the funding aspect. I was funding Aboriginal organisations. But we were at a conference and there was over 286 
Aboriginal workers in New South Wales that worked for facts. And so we do see the pendulum swaying to the other side. Mm-hmm. And good work has been done. I think of, you know, beautiful brother Peter Gibbs in Dubbo who started the I Proud courses and, you know, has, well, last count, it's probably got more now, but recruited 350 Aboriginal people, men and women, to work in the police force trying to make a difference. So, as you said, if you're driving around a mission, you've got a black and a white officer, and the black officer's educating the white officer, you know, this is why that fly screen's pulled off that door because there's 20 adults living in there, and that door's being opened 700 times more than the ordinary European house with two adults, two children, and started explaining the effect of powerlessness and the impact of the assimilation policy. We're still dealing with that today. Um, Until you learn to take hold of that power, it's very hard. You're like a fish swimming against the tide. Yes, it was broken. Appreciate that it's much easier to try and uh, influence the system from the inside because I can imagine the first Indigenous mm. officers probably got a bit of pushback. Oh. Right? Yeah. And, oh, and yes. yeah. And... Well, Peter tells stories of a, two young men up in Northern Territory, and uh, he would just say he was doing another course at TAFE, you know, to his uncles and oh. mm. too, too scared to tell his parents what he was actually doing. When he graduated, they were so proud of him, but the other fella, the whole family excommunicated him because they saw it as he went to work for the white fellas. And it was a great cost. And, yeah, even myself working for facts. And when I explained to people, you know, I'm in the funding, we're funding Aboriginal organisations, we're funding Aboriginal preschools and family support services and, you know, so on. It's about explaining that and educating them. Yeah. I know of at least three Aboriginal police officers in Newcastle, and Michael's absolutely wonderful. I watched him go through high school and then become a police officer, and there's two others from other areas. There could be more now because I haven't got my finger on the pulse. But, you know, I I wept for him in Black Lives Matter Mm. when... You know, we saw police officers kneeling with their hands up because they were in solidarity. They knew that what had happened to George Floyd should never have happened. And so I you know, was praying for our Aboriginal men and women in the police force. Um, we, we have to protect them. Yeah, it must be very challenging for them at times because you, you're trying to, definitely mm. trying to do your best, but... um. Also, I can appreciate it's it's frustrating for them at times, but like how maybe they they don't can't get things through as fast as they'd like to. It takes a long time to change the system, so I can appreciate it's a very yes. difficult position for them to be in on on a couple of fronts, really. And Damon, you said um, I was the first person so far that you've interviewed that hasn't been in jail, and yes, of course. Being locked up and behind bars and away from family is extremely, extremely difficult. But it's also difficult when you're locked up in the prison 
of your own mind that's hard to get out of too. Yes, I um, I was in prison of my own mind for, for many years before I actually hit rock bottom. Mm. And um, yeah, I actually feel much, much better about myself now that I've addressed some of those issues yeah. with my childhood mm-hmm. that I was trying to avoid. I was I was really interested to hear that you um signed uh, that document regarding the the Royal Commission because we've uh, recently hit the sad milestone of um 500 Indigenous deaths in custody uh, since that happened and Indigenous people yeah. are still six times more likely to die in custody than non-Indigenous people and mm-hmm. what's your understanding of why this continues to be an issue and why the recommendations of that Royal Commission remain largely ignored. So it's difficult unless you've done thorough research, but just as a woman, as a community member, as, you know, being involved with prison visitation, there are many factors to that death in custody. And so, yes, they have made sure that the rooms are all smooth and you can't cut yourself, all the steel is smoothed out. And, you know, then we had that cell watch making sure people couldn't harm themselves inside. People do die of a broken heart being away from family and off country. It has such an impact on your spiritual side of your life and there's that sense of failure, you know, of stuffed up again, of shamed my family and my kids and my missus the shame factor, being so weak I can't go on. We don't know half the stories. My brothers have only told me a few stories, what goes on inside, and we'd be shocked if we knew all of them. So if there's sexual abuse, why would you want to go on living? How would you think... How do you think you'd cope after staying here another, you know, 10 years, 15 years and be sexually abused every night? Death sounds like an easy way out. And there are officers, wardens that do abuse. I share with the women sometimes. So that neglect inside, prisoners have got rights. Even the, the issue of the blanket rations, in very cold places like Goulburn and, well, any prison that's made of brick, concrete, it would be freezing in winter. And so it's not right not to have blankets. Prisoners have rights too. So there's a lot of abuse and silence within those walls. There definitely is. And I, um, it's obviously always tragic to lose a loved one, but I can only imagine when losing someone in custody is so much harder because not only are you not there during their last days, you you not oh, you yes. might not be aware of you know, what exactly what happened to them, and especially because uh, yeah, no um, police officer or corrections officer has ever been held responsible for for one of those five hundred yep. deaths, and I can only imagine that just builds on the intergenerational and <laughs> trauma that people already yes. have, and yeah. exactly, and then the children that next generation grow up and. You know, they're hearing messages from mum and dad, you know, from the time they're two and they can understand. And so they're growing up and instantly it's just a normal reaction not to trust police. So there's that intergenerational trauma and distrust. One of the great initiatives that 
I saw when I was at a Wabi call is that, well, for even when my uncles were in their 20s, in National Aboriginal Week, there was always a boxing match. Uh, you know, you either played football or, or boxing. And so the local lads would have a boxing tournament with the local police. Yeah. And everyone would be on the sideline saying, give him a you know, left or give him a right or give him one for me. Yeah, give him one for me. So then the police changed it to not boxing but a football match. And so I remember at Linda River, every year there was a footy match. And that really helped race relations to see each other just as citizens. And it did a lot to break down barriers. So again, it would come back to that police man or woman, their understanding and respect for Aboriginal people and culture, their understanding of humanity. And um, I remember one interview on Black Lives Matter that a beautiful uh, female black, I think she was magistrate, interviewing one of the heads of the police department in, in America and he was in a white fella, and he was excusing the policeman's behaviour by saying, oh, we have to teach our policemen to be humane. And she, she interrupted him. She said, if you've got to teach them to be humane, they shouldn't be in the police force. That's not, you know, that type of personality or attributes that a police officer should have. And, it's you know, I didn't realise till then just how entrenched hatred racism is. We we were shocked. We thought, are we back in the 60s? Are we marching for race again? You know, and I just cried for three days. I couldn't believe that image. And even to this day, I've not watched a full, uh, is it six, seven minutes of George Floyd's last minutes? I, I just can't do it. I, you know, to hear a man calling out for his mother, a grown man calling out for mum. Yeah. You know, in our deepest fear, we call out for mum. I um, yeah. I deliberate, deliberately haven't watched it myself because I think oh. it'd be too triggering for me. You can't. Yeah. You can't. That's it. Yes, it was broken. You um involved in the um, Black Lives Matter protests we had over here or rallies When it happened, we were in lockdown, but what I did, I went online and my mentor was Bishop T.D. Jakes. I just kept listening to him hour after hour and seeing how he was reacting and how he was guiding, mentoring and making his way through the turmoil, and so that's who I looked to. When there was talk of a, a march in Newcastle, and see, I'm in the church, and immediately it was no, no doubt. I thought, I have to march. This is totally wrong. It should never have happened. And we know that we know that we know. Had that been reversed? Had that been? a white civilian and a black police officer on top of him with kneeling, pushing pressure into his throat, that black officer would not have stood up. He would have been shot in the back multiple times, you know, 10, 20 times. It wouldn't have happened. So it was so totally wrong. And it was the injustice and, 
you know, the fury of that. But when they said we had a march in Newcastle, my dear friend, we were all in prison ministry and visiting, and she was going to the big march in Sydney, and I said, no, this is, this is my community. I'm the one in church speaking about prison ministry. And I had no qualms, and then she rang me the night before. She said, I'll come and march with you. And uh, I was so proud. You know, we, when we got to that little park up the top of town, to see it packed, I had no idea. I thought we might get a few hundred people. Um, it was so contentious, and we just were in shock, in shock to see the stats of people. And part of me thinks, well, because you had to wear a mask and then a lot of people wore beanies, so, you know, they probably couldn't be recognised, but they came. I was so proud of Newcastle. We came of age. We cared for humanity. And I think there was 5,000 people in the march and we never expected that. Even one of our elders, Ray Kelly, he just leaned over to me when we got to City Park and the speeches. He said, Don, I can't believe all these people came. Can't believe it. And I said, yep, we're not alone. Just like the bridge walk in Sydney. That day I thought there might only be a few hundred. But 20,000 people marched. They marched across that bridge in 1990. And I thought, we're not alone. We've got supporters. Non-Aboriginal people are starting to understand and believing in the truth of our history, the truth of this country. And so I only went to that march. I thought I'd done it. And then because I'm on radio, because I speak in churches and and wherever I'm asked, I can use my voice. And, you know, writing the pen is mightier than the sword because there are other issues that emerged from that. Black Lives Matter, but, you know, I was marching down those streets and I thought, I'm doing this for our young teenage boys in Frank Baxter, for our Aboriginal men in prison. Mm-hmm. How would it be if, if, you know, I've been in prison ministry 21 years and if I wasn't there, you know, you just can't do that. So we were representing our men and women inside I was on that march and I uh, I did, I don't know what you're talking about because, yeah, we went all the way up to that, that park. The name of it escapes me, but um, I, <laughs> I made yep, the... Yeah, Civic Park. Yep. Yeah, that's it. And, um, yeah, I, I, t- <laughs> I took my little dog with me and I, he's not normally being in, not used to being in crowds, so he, he got a little bit hyper. Oh. He, he didn't know how to, what to make of it. I was really overwhelmed with the community support. I, something that I remember that um, a lot of people were disappointed about was uh, when we got there, um, they, we were encouraged to take, take a knee and I remember... There are about eight police officers there, and um, I, I saw mm-hmm. footage of people in America, um, police officers in America, joining yeah. in solidarity, but that they didn't at, at, yeah. at that uh, at the top of the hill there. Which, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, one one person actually yelled out, "Yeah, down in front," which I uh, thought was uh, appropriate. But yeah, that was it was yeah. a little bit disappointing to see. I can imagine how positive it is when you you, you see so many non-indigenous people joining and how much difference that makes yeah was wonderful and what i learned that day is we're absolutely not alone because we heard the speeches from other colored people you know now the maoris were speaking up and the filipinos and the africans and they're all targeted you know the police 
watch them in the cars. I've been pulled over a couple of times. Their story's the same. Yeah, I'm, I'm Maori on my, my father's side. And um, right. I grew up in Sydney in a very multicultural neighborhood. And my, yeah, my skin isn't that dark, but it's, you know, it's a little bit darker than you know, <laughs> average yeah. white person. And um, when I moved to Armadale to go to university and, and other things, and I, um, it was a very rural town and there was a high indigenous population. And I remember yeah. I, I went to the Armadale show and for the, like, uh, the police actually went out of me. They ignored my friends and they went out of their way to uh, bring their sniff a dog up to me and I didn't and see because I grew up in a very multicultural neighborhood I was really confused and it was actually one of my indigenous friends was like I oh, know it's because it's you're darker than everyone else and I'm like oh wow you know and it's something like yeah because yeah. um I yeah well where I grew up I, I was I was very light-skinned like most people think I'm white and so yeah I'd never I'd never faced any kind of discrimination and I, mean, I suppose it wasn't that bad but it was like kind of eye-opening I can only imagine how much like uh, people who are much darker than me get profiled and I can already like know how much things compound because you know if you, you grow up in an environment where you your parents and um, older siblings yeah. and people have had a lot of bad interactions with the police, you've obviously um, quite distrustful of them and then they come near you and you're a little bit standoffish and then they're like, yeah. why are you standoffish? Now they want to investigate you further. And it just, yeah, I can see we yeah. definitely need a lot more humane um yeah, police need like less weapons and more social skills, I think, to you know diffuse situations and uh, and understand why someone might be mm. a little bit uh, hesitant when they when they approach. Because yeah, there's a there's, I, I feel like a lot of issues could be avoided. And, mm. Well, I remember I was studying at uni from I graduated in '88, so doing social welfare one module for six months was psychology and so that was interesting and I'd been out working since 88, started off the Wabakal Co-op and then I went into education and I was just driving to work one day and I heard on the news what made news was that they had just introduced a module of psychology into the training of the police and that was 1997. I know it died, I thought. I could not believe that they didn't have any training in psychology. And so I just thought that says it all. If they don't understand behaviour and understand not not excusing behaviour but understanding, you know, all the triggers and what leads up to committing a crime or, you know, even an anger outburst when the dam bursts, they I didn't have training in that. That was, yeah, I was just blown away. I'm really surprised. Well, I actually, part of me is not surprised to hear that. <laughs> but, like, um, I know what you mean. I, I, um, I remember yeah. getting in, a, in a, like a heated discussion with a friend uh, like many years ago. It was probably late teens. And uh, there was a call for more women in the police force. And my friend, who was mm. quite a right-wing person, he was like, oh, no, but like, you know, the cops need to be six foot four and like, you know, to, to kind of deal with like the violence and stuff. And I'm like, but no, you're, you're not thinking about it the right way. You, you th you're assuming yeah. that the only way to uh, solve any problem is with violence. And, you know, if, whereas if you, yeah. you can do like avoid conflicts happening in the first place, um, you yeah. just by having a female or an indigenous officer, someone who can relate better to the person who's being, uh, you know, uh, approached by police for whatever reason. Yeah. You yeah. Can avoid these issues in the first place. But, uh, and I've, feel like we're still trying to break down those mm. stereotypes a bit unfortunately and uh, but yeah we can 
do is try to keep making progress and uh, hopefully the more people, Indigenous people we get in, in those systems, the, the better it will become. Yeah, yes. it's, it's and I think that's the beauty of Peter Gibbs' program, iProud, breaking down the barriers and educating. I mean, all of us, Aboriginal workers in every government department, wherever we've worked, and more often than not, there's only one, if you're lucky, two Aboriginal people, say, in a head office or, you know, within a department. And so at least 50% of your role is educating your non-Aboriginal colleagues. Things like, and I said it when I first started in health, you know, I've been in docs in education and health. And I said it on my first day. I said that we were in a pod, there were three other women. And I said, out of respect, you know, when I'm talking to someone, if they're younger than me, I'll call them cousins. If they're older than me, I'll call them aunt and uncle. And I'd said that day one to, to get it straight. And, you know, it was about six months later, one lady said, Gee, you've got a big family. Gee, you've got lots of aunts and uncles. And how many are there? And, you know, she's talking. And, and I thought, you didn't even hear what I said that first day because always we found out, you know, they think we're not doing our job, that we're just sitting on the phone talking to our family all day long. I just thought it's so ignorant. But what I'm saying is your role is educating what's appropriate, what you say, what you don't say, you know, and even within our prison ministry, we do an Aboriginal awareness training session. You know, if you've got Aboriginal women coming away for a weekend to be supported because their loved one's inside or they've been impacted by incarceration, you only get one chance. If you say the wrong thing to her, she's going to shut down all weekend and you're not going to be able to build a rapport or relationship. So a lot of your work is, is doing that exactly. Yes, it was broken. So you're working at Liaison Officer at John Hunter Hospital at the moment, is that right? I was there for nine years in that role and, and loved it. It's, you know, within social work and we had a brilliant team and they would fly our people in from Maury, Tweed Heads, all around the Hunter New England area. So it was wonderful meeting our community members from afar. Um, and as I'm getting older, then I got plantar fasciitis in my foot and it just got worse and worse over six months. So I had to give up that job and I've retrained them on switchboard in the front counters and doing cultural support. So, but yeah, I just think it's important when our mob first come in the hospital to see a crew's face because their mums and dads, their aunts and uncles, it was the nurses who would ring the welfare and report to say a single mum and then the children would be removed. And so that's been ongoing. So, you know, if you have those Aboriginal faces front line, whether it's the police or facts or education, that when they come in, they know that there's someone there that understands cultural history, that has an understanding of what their life is or, you know, even just understand the Aboriginal issues. And do you know what I love is, 
some people are serious, but then, you know, they see your tag, your ID, and I've got the Aboriginal flag on it. And I won't let that person go until I give them a smile and they smile back. And the other co-worker said, it's so different when you're on Don. People just, they see people treating me differently in a good way. And, you know, it takes respect. So once you've healed and, you know, you know who you are, you've got your sense of belonging, you're becoming and being, then, you know, we can look each other in the eye and just have that mutual respect. Occasionally, you know, a member of the parliament might go to the next worker. You know, I'm not sure whether they want to go there because she's white or if it, they're not even thinking about anything, you know, just I can go up and not wait to be served. It's very interesting, the dynamics, but I don't analyse as much as I used to, Damien. You know, it, when you're not healed, every little action you, you notice. But when you've got your power, it's just water off a duck's back. You just carry on because you know who you are. You know what you've lived through. And as member of the state and of Australia, I just believe in, I guess, presenting our best but expecting better from society. Once, you know, I had little love or confidence in white people, but for me that's changed. And, look, my story is so different to any of my siblings. That's why I had to write the book, but their stories, their anger, their heartache, and also because I was raised in the church and because I've been fortunate to meet the best in both societies. And so, you know, sharing a story at first in the 80s and 90s, it was hard. But unless we hear each other's story, our minds remain closed and we don't, you know, get that opportunity for growth, for change, to affect change. I want to affect racism. Probably because I experienced so much as a child and I know the impact and it, it brought me to the point of wanting to suicide because I felt so judged, I felt so different, I felt unworthy and uh, dumb. I, I became... The self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, and growing up in the 60s, there was no expectations on what society for any of us Aboriginal people to succeed. And so when I first went to uni, um, I was saying, you know, with anger to myself, I thought, I'll show them white fellas that, you know, I can do it, that I can study that. And it was hard because I had three young children under the age of 12 and a husband on shift work and trying to do studies and writing up assignments and, you know, I was angry. I thought, I'll show them. But after six weeks of being at uni, I thought, no, I've got to show it to myself. I've got to prove it to myself first. And that was the change agent. Um, And, of course, knowledge is power. There's always more to learn. Sometimes, you know, because I'm getting older, Sometimes I think I'll stick my head in the sand. I don't want to learn anymore. I don't want to learn more IT or I don't want the news on. I don't want to hear what's going on in the world, but that only lasts a couple of days. And then you've got to learn something new. And 
it's empowering. You know, what did I learn today? Taught myself, get into bed, list five things I learned today. And so that's what I say to the young girls that I mentor. Got to be forever learning. That's a really good way to do things because I've heard of like gratitude journals where you like, you know, you'd say, yeah. what, what's the best things happened today? What, what did I learn today? That's a, that's a really oh, yeah. positive thing to do. And I've actually um, I've read <laughs> a study on um, when you actually learn something new, your brain rewards you with um, like, you know, positive um, like hormones and stuff. Yeah. It's so yeah. we're, we're hardwired. That's how like, you know, with our brain, like you know, evolution's kind of tricked us into, um, into wanting to learn things that, yeah, we actually rewards us. Exactly. But, uh, yeah. We even know self, satisfaction and you do a job well you're proud you know like it could be you know crocheting a blanket or I've just painted the fence in my yard you know and just to finish that the completion of a task is rewarding so that's what I want to teach our children to reward yourself to celebrate your growth and your achievements you just got to keep Yes, it was broken. Is there anything else you'd like to mention before we go? Well, my husband died in 1999 and about four months later I thought, who can I help? Who's worse off than me? And I didn't want to fall into that pity of, you know, that big black hole of self-pity. And I was praying about it. I said, Lord, who can I help? Who's worse off? Couldn't think of anybody. And then he just said prisoners. And so two months later, I get a call from Chapman Di Langham, who was at St. Baxter, and she said, we're going to run a Kairos prison program inside for teenage boys. We want you to be part of it. And so that was my introduction. Of course, having, and I, I could easily say up to 80 Aboriginal family members that have been incarcerated and, you know, whether that's brothers, uncles, in-laws, cousins and uh, nieces and nephews. That's why I do prison ministry. We visit the Aboriginal boys once a month. When we can, we run a program. We haven't been able to do it for two years because of COVID. But it's so rewarding. You know, one time, and I'll finish with this, one time... Uh, we used to we used to drive down every second Monday night, and we'd have like a mini church. So you're leaving government department, you know, going speeding, <laughs> going fast all the way down to St. Baxter to get there by quarter to six. Go in, we used to stay till half past eight. Just having that time with the boys, having pizza, sharing stories, praying, singing, and mentoring, and they'd have um, something to eat. One time I thought, oh, it's such a rush. It's it's just extra work. I was thinking of giving it up, and this particular night, this big boy from Taree, who I first met on a year six transitional camp, <laughs> and then to see him years later in prison, and then he just put his arm around me, said, Aunt, thank you for doing this, it makes a difference. He said, you know, I wanted to kill myself last week, but I knew you would be back in a fortnight, and he said, keep doing this because it makes a difference. So, you know, that was words right out of his mouth. And to know that that little visit can make a difference. We, I just asked different friends, about six friends, to write 20 Christmas cards each for our brothers at Frank Baxter and Cessnock. 
And then they've asked a friend and asked a friend, I've got 300 Christmas cards sitting on my table. And I thought, well, people just need to know how can they help? How can they make a difference? And just a card letting them know we're thinking of them on Christmas Day because that is the hardest day of the year. If ever you felt alone and lonely, it's going to be that day. And you can try to pretend it's not a special day, it's not Christmas, but you can't. And so, you know, just sharing that love and saying to prisoners, we think of you on the outside every day. We are praying for you, for your family, for your children. And even when they go home, because that transition is even difficult, you never go home to the same place, you know, the children have grown up a couple of years and mum's been now, the leadership in the house, all those factors. So just uh, sharing a bit of love. So give a thought for our brothers inside on Christmas Day. That sounds like a really fantastic program. I wasn't aware that you were doing that, the, the, the Christmas cards. This will probably go out after Christmas, but uh, how would people get involved with um, that general program if they wanted to? Okay, so one is the, the Kairos program, prison ministry and a process through the church, you know. The voluntary, there's, I think, all the chaplains, they would love someone to, there's a men's group that goes up and visits the men at Cessnock Jail, if that could be once a month, I'm not sure. But, you know, voluntary visitation, if you have been inside, you have to wait five years before corrective services will clear you to come back in to visit. And so even with the visiting, you've got to have the right heart attitude. You know, we don't want people going in there and judging and saying, oh, you did a crime, you deserve to do the time. They already know that. What helps a person to grow is unconditional love, when you can just love them. That inspires them to be the better man. That helps them to step up. When we judge people, we're deflating them. And how could you know unless you walk their tracks? So, yeah, I would just get in touch with the local chaplain at the local jail close to your place and just ask, can you use some volunteers? Even what I saw as a ripple effect of, you know, I'll often say to Sister Di, what do you need? What what can we do to support you? She said, Don, we need clothes so badly for the men getting out and we need big sizes because they go in little but then they're eating so much and they're not exercising and they always leave, you know, two sizes bigger than what they came in so the clothes they walked in with won't fit. And, of course, with COVID, all of the op shops were shut and died saying, we have no clothes. And so, uh, you know, we put it out there and bag loads came in and a lot of new stuff that people had at home and we tagged on it. And so all of these clothes help the brothers to walk out with dignity. And even the cheap tote bags, because if you haven't got a bag, the inmates are leaving, catching a public bus, and they've got a plastic bag or a you know, A4 brown envelope with their personal stuff in it. So, you know, we even buy these cheap tote bags so that they can carry it and they can walk out of prison with dignity. And a beautiful warden that works at Cessnock and his wife is in prison ministry with us. They went and bought six or eight of the really expensive tote bags. And so these are the stories that 
need to be told of the good things that are happening within prisons, within society, and it doesn't make the headlines, you know, the quiet achievers, but there's good stuff happening in the hardest of places. There was a uh, prison ministry that came to where I was at in Glen Innes, and I, I'm not even a, a Christian. I just used to go because they were lovely, yeah. lovely people, and it was nice yeah. to have someone who who was supportive. I, I did mention um, yeah. in the first season, I was really upset that I couldn't get any like mental health treatment in in. Yeah. And the the only person we had was was the chaplain, and he was very very nice. But like uh, we, we needed a psychologist, but I, I do want to make, make clear that yeah the um. Those uh, ministry groups, they, they do do a lot of a lot of good work, and it's mm-hmm. just it's great just having someone you can go and, and talk to and and. Um, yeah, so yeah, we need to pray for the chaplains. They, mm. yeah, they do a great job inside, and mm. yeah, and I guess you know that's why Cook came to Australia looking for land to set up a penal colony, and mm. so it's been built that way. You know, the system's not broken; it's built that way. And even in 93, that was Year of Indigenous People, we sent out white paper to government saying, stop calling prisons, stop naming them and using Aboriginal words. That doesn't make us feel welcome when we walk in there. And, you know, we saw it as derogatory. Now, give it your white names, but keep our names for special positive things in society. And so... Yeah, you'll notice a lot of the jails have got cool words. Yeah, it's it's kind of ironic. They're pro- they're, they're probably trying to make it look like they're inclusive, and they're just <laughs> making the problem worse. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. All that appropriateness. Well, thank you, Damien, for your time and bless the work you're doing and we pray for continued healing. And you know, you're going to be in such leadership, and the young men behind you looking at you to get those cues and keys, how do I survive this worst season in my life? Thanks for, so much for being on the program and uh, it's, been, it's been really lovely talking to you. Yeah. Thank you, Damon. Appreciate you. Thank you. But she was no more broken than a spear with a chipped blade. Marks like those were signs of strength. Marks like those were signs signs of strength. Well, that brings us to the end of Season 2 of Broken Chains. A big thank you to all of our listeners for making another season possible. Broken Chains is hosted by myself, Damien Lanane, is produced by Newcastle Libraries, and features music by Louisa Magricks. Check out more of her work at soundcloud.com forward slash music LXM. And to stay up to date with my own projects, visit my website, DamienLenane.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Don't forget to smile, and we'll see you next time. Dines of Strength. Marks like those were signs. Dines of Strength. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real Production. If you would like to learn more about the topics covered in this or any of the Broken Chains episodes, please explore our show notes.